Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. We've got an exciting guest for you today. It's a New Hampshire native who is currently the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, Phillips Exeter alum, Sam Fold. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You bet. I'm happy to be on. Yeah, I've, I'm going to be honest with you. I grew up a Philadelphia Phillies fan and I remain a Phillies fan today. So I am especially excited about your tenure with the Phillies. We made it to the World Series two years ago, back to the NLCS last year. So big round of applause for you. Well, well done. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad you're not doing a Mid-Atlantic baseball journal and you, you found a home in New England. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how how would you describe this offseason so far? How's it going for you? I know the Dodgers seem to be scooping up everybody that's available. How how has the Phillies offseason been going for you? It's been good. It certainly seems to be the the winner of the Dodgers, but yeah, it's been good. I mean, I think we were we were fortunate to get a deal done with Aaron Nola early on in the offseason. We knew the starting pitching was going to be a focus of ours and to bring back a workhorse like like Knowles, I think, gave everybody peace of mind. Knowles himself, I think he really wanted to be back with us. He's been such a big part of our, our family here and has been through the ups and downs as we've sort of gutted through some rebuilding years and then has been obviously a huge part of our, our last two postseason runs. So to be able to plug that hole with him, we felt fantastic about. And I think from there, we 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 were engaged on, on Yamamoto and I think went through a really good process there and I think learned a lot and we're disappointed that he's not going to be a Philly, but we recognize that there's plenty of other talent out there. And I think from from here on in, we're continuing to be ga- engaged with other clubs and with, with agents. And even though we haven't had a whole lot to show for, we're, we're obviously continuing to find ways, however marginal they may be, to to make us a better ball club going into 2024. Yeah, I was psyched that Nola came back. What really strikes me about this Phillies team that maybe wasn't the case with previous ones like when I was growing up is the way the players have really embraced the fans and really taken to playing in the city of Philadelphia. I remember growing up listening to like Mike Schmidt and Pete Rose talk about being booed in Philadelphia and how it's so so hard to play there. But Nola, it seems like, took less money to come back to Philadelphia. It seems like even like Baum and Trey Turner last year, it kind of got rocky starts with the fans of Philadelphia. And then now they're like getting standing O's and really the fans are rallying those guys to their best seasons. Bryce Harper's calling into talk radio and engaging with the fans. It's crazy. What is it about this group you think that really loves playing in the city of Philadelphia? Well, you you can't help but feel the the passion of the the Philly faithful. I mean, I think it's something that the whole the whole sports world is aware of. But until you really experience it, it's it's uh, it's 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 different. It really is. I, I my first few years here with the Phillies, I kept hearing about wait wait till this playoff environment comes. Just wait, it's different. And I thought to myself, well, I I, I played in uh, a bunch of different playoff games. Had had the good fortune of playing in a few different venues during the playoffs and i thought to myself well they're they're all electric think they're all special it's the playoffs and then two rolled around and yeah the seismographs were picking up on the noise and the the literal earth movement that that we were that the the citizens bank park was providing and it is just it's a different experience it's uh, everybody's on their feet everybody's into it the the way that the fans have turned out the last couple of years, like coming around, coming on the back end of COVID and, and having some you know, really good talent and, and, and more wins than we had my first few years here. I think it's been cool to see the, the fans rally around us and 
and it's not just in the playoffs it's throughout the course of the regular season and yeah they've they've got this reputation of throwing batteries at, at Santa and, and whatnot but it was cool to see them really you, you, you touched on the trade Turner situation I thought that was really neat we are the city of brotherly love here in Philadelphia and I think that they showed that uh, this year and and I have no doubt that that helped turn his season around and he was a huge part of our success in the, the second half of the year and into the playoffs. Yeah, and I, I recognize our audience is a New England listener, so I'm not going to go the entire time on the Phillies. I'll try to do some New England crossover stuff. The first thing I do want to ask you about is Dave Dombrowskin. I was just talking to my producer, David Yaz, about this. When he left Boston, there was kind of a little bit of pushback, like, hey, he gutted the farm system. He, we're, we're worse off than he left us. And now 10 years later, when you look at that tenure, you're like, hey, he won a World Series. That's the whole idea. And he was like, hey, it's really cool when the person in charge puts out the best product for the big league club. That's what we want. We want to win at the big league level. So I think his tenure is definitely remembered differently now. What has it been like working with him? And what? How, and you were relatively inexperienced in terms of uh, a front office, at least at the the level you're at now, when you came to the Phillies and worked together with Dave Dombrowski. What has it been like? What have you learned from him? I've learned a ton. I mean, it's been three great years. It's it's a pleasure kind of day in and day out to, to work with what I think is going to future Hall of Famer and, and somebody who's gone to five World Series and won two and done so with four, gone to World Series with four different organizations. It, it, it's just brings a wealth of, of knowledge and wisdom that I, I'm lucky to be a, a benefactor of on a, on a daily basis. He cares. It's the, the level of commitment, first thing that comes to mind is just the, the commitment and almost obsession with winning. It's, it's special. It's, it's somebody who's been doing this for 35 years, leading organizations for 35 years. I think it would be easy for that person to be comfortable and rest on their laurels and just sort of almost approach it as a, as I'm a future Hall of Famer and I'm, I'm not quite as committed to, to taking this organization to the top, but it couldn't be further from the truth with Dave. He's, he lives, breathes and eats baseball. And his commitment to winning today, I think is as strong as it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So I, I learned a lot. It's just, you can't necessarily put a finger on, on the things that he helps me with. He's just seen so much. He's seen everything in this game. So it's a true pleasure to be be around him. And I think he's just sort of heightened the expectations and the level of focus across the organization. And certainly we're seeing the fruits of that on the field. Yeah, you mentioned it's the offseason of the Dodgers so far. And it's not over yet. But what struck me about some of those deals, especially the Otani deal that he's deferring so much money, I don't know why a player would choose to do that. You would think you'd want the money now, invest it, it turns into more money later. Who knows what could happen to you in the next 15 years? You, you, I would I would take that money now rather than later. But do you think that's going to become a common theme among teams to get players to sign for deferred salaries? Tough to say. It really is. You saw with, with the latest Dodgers signing to Oscar Hernandez that he, he deferred a right. decent chunk of his salary for future years. So um, I, I don't know if you're going to see a trend or not. I, I think the Otani situation is a bit unique in that he's just got so much uh, other means of of income that even if he's pushing off 68 million dollars a year for a decade from now he's certainly going to be able to put food on the table it seems with his other sources of revenue so i think that that situation speaks to me as as a unique one so i i don't think you're necessarily going to see that that sort of the the 
portion of which is deferred. I don't think that that's going to necessarily become a trend, but look, kudos to them, both sides there for, for being creative and, and finding ways to get a deal done that made sense on both ends. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it changes things a little bit, but I wouldn't necessarily see it classified as like a huge paradigm shift. Yeah. You've, I know the Red Sox have had interest in you in a couple of different roles over the years. This winter, I think they wanted you to interview for the, I guess it's a GM job or it was whatever Heim Bloom's job was after he was fired. They ended up with Craig Breslow. I think you were also interviewed for the manager job when they hired Alex Cora. Why is it that it, it hasn't worked out with the Red Sox and how close have you been to becoming a Red Sox manager or front office personnel? Yeah, so two pretty wildly different scenarios there. I mean, the, the managerial opportunity was three years ago where uh, there was some uncertainty in the Phillies organization. Dave had yet not yet come on board. And there there's certainly an appeal geographically to me to, that Boston provides. My parents are still in Durham, New Hampshire, in the house that I grew up in. And that felt like an opportunity, given the circumstances at play, that was too good to pass up and it was a great process for me to go through until the to the very end and I'm glad I'm glad I got an opportunity to at least explore that opportunity and I think like this this off season was a a, a totally different circumstance I've I've really laid down roots here in Philadelphia I love the direction that we're headed I love the people that I get to work with and I love the the role that I'm in and and certainly if you had told 10 year old me that I'd be turning down an opportunity like that I probably would have said you're crazy, but I think it speaks to the the situation that I'm in here, both professionally and, and personally. And my, my family and I love being Philadelphians and we're, we're really just happy with everything that we have going on here. And what are your impressions on Craig Breslow? I know he played for Team Israel. You played for Team Israel. Did you play together on the team or was that different times? Different times. Yeah, I, I played on the 2017 WBC team, and I believe Craig may have played for a, like a qualifying team prior to that. Oh, okay. Prior, so we never crossed paths as teammates. Certainly played against him when he was in Boston and I was in Tampa, and I think have a great deal of respect for Craig, and I've gotten to know him just through mutual friends, and and really happy for him and the opportunity that he's getting right now. And yeah, I'm excited to see what he can do. What do you make of the, I heard that they thought that some, somebody said within the Red Sox organization that they were going to have to cut payroll in order to make more signings this off season. Does that sound right to you that they're, they need to get cut payroll when they're not even in the top 10 right now in terms of MLB payroll? Well, I, not to punt on the question, but I can genuinely not, not speak to, to their situation. It really is our pit. It's being possible for me to, to understand where they are financially. So those decisions are 30 unique decisions that each club and ownership group have to make. So yeah, I think I can understand the question. I appreciate the question, but but certainly don't have a lot of a lot of insights there. Yeah. Now I know I was reading about your kind of childhood growing up in Durham, New Hampshire. Your dad was a professor at, at UNH and he was saying, I think I read somewhere that as a kid you were like three or four years old and you used to work out baseball player batting averages like in your head not even using a calculator for guys that had logged like 500 plus at bats during a season do you feel like this uh, position is something that you've kind of been angling towards your entire life this is playing to your strengths in the best way possible 
I think it's somewhat for sure. I mean, my, my goal as a kid was to just try to play at the highest level. And I'll certainly be honest with you, exceeded any expectations I had as a kid. I, I always felt like I was a bit of an underdog, just a one coming from a not exactly a baseball hotbed of, of Durham, New Hampshire, and knowing that I was going to be undersized and having some odds stacked against me, I think gave me some good perspective on on the odds of reaching the highest level. So I had goals as a kid to play in college. And then as as my career continued in, in the high school and into college, I thought, well, gosh, it'd be amazing if I could play professional baseball, just get one professional at bat and to say I played professional baseball. And then things continued to progress and my goals shifted and just feel r- really fortunate to to have been able to play at the highest level. And But in the back of my mind, certainly was always intrigued by the way that teams operate and was like like most baseball fans growing up in New England was a, was a big Red Sox fan. And I think just sort of following baseball, following the Red Sox as a kid, just sort of piqued my interest in how teams operate underneath the hood. And yeah, I had a love for sort of numbers side of the game. And I think that that, that passion fits well in, in many ways in terms of what it takes to to make good decisions as a, as a leader within an organization. So yeah, I mean, I, I would come home from school and open up Foster's Daily Democrat and look at the box scores and just try to absorb as much information as I could and, and combine my really like two true loves at that time, uh, baseball and, and numbers. Yeah, I actually went to UNH, so I know a little bit about that athletic scene. Oh, you didn't have my dad. <laughs> no, I don't think I did. But I did, I, I, after I got out of UNH, I, college, I covered a little bit of prep baseball up in that area, and I'd covered a fair share of Phillips Exeter. This was after you were gone. But how did you, it's so much different now, the prep scene in New England. Now it's so many more guys are going that, to the prep level. They're doing PG years. They are, there's so many D1 prospects at the prep level. What do you remember about the level of competition when you were at Exeter and how heavily were you recruited coming out of high school? I read somewhere that you had 90, 90 offers from college programs. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right number. I remember getting a bunch of mail at a different time, obviously, and I'm going to date myself with, with some of these anecdotes, but I, yeah, I remember getting like literal VHS is sent. I think one of the first pieces of mail I got was from like Wofford College and it was an actual VHS that you popped in the VCR and looked at some recruiting film to, to try to woo you down there. But yeah, I, I, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to have, have a few de- decisions on my hand as a, as a Exonian in, in terms of where I was going to matriculate to college and Stanford was a bit of a pipe dream for me. Um, you know, but, but I won't say showed interest, but like, gosh, it'd be impossible to turn that opportunity down. But yeah, the 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 level of play certainly seems different today than it was. I mean, I remember facing Andover, and and they had a player by the name of Mark Horton who went on to play at Harvard, and he's probably somebody who sat in the high eighties. And I just remember thinking, "Holy cow, this is like yes, and this is this guy's different. This he's, he's special." And there weren't two that league was not necessarily littered with Division One players the way that that they are now. So needless to say, the big, big step up in, in competition going from the central New England prep school baseball league to the, the Pac-10 at that point. But yeah, there was some good talent. And I do have a postgraduate environment, I think, certainly made me feel small. Playing with 19-year-olds when I was a freshman at Exeter, I think, was a, a bit of an eye-opening experience and felt like I was playing with a bunch of men. So 
maybe maybe they weren't all Division One prospects, but they're physical, and it was still really good, high level of play. Do you ever consider scouting up here when you're if you're just coming home to see your parents? Yeah, you know what? I, yes and no. I, I unfortunately don't get with the sort of rigors of my job and you know, being a father of four. Don't don't get up to New Hampshire as much as I'd like to, and, and certainly follow follow the amateur scene from a distance. Have, have a great deal of trust and faith in our amateur scouting director and, and his group. So probably good that I don't dip my toes in the amateur waters too much. <laughs> yeah, but it is certainly a a, a part of this game that's fascinating to me and and it's maybe in a different lifetime i'd be on the road scouting amateur talent but i i think given everything at play it's probably best that i just follow the thomas whites from afar yeah you spent you went like you said you went to college at stanford you were drafted twice in college right yeah after your junior year and then you went back for your senior year and you you ended up being on three teams that went to omaha for the college world series i've never been to omaha but i i've heard that that is a great environment for baseball at any level what was that uh like for you to go to omaha and play in the college world series it, it really felt like you're a big leaguer for that that week two-week period that you're out there I, I know it's a different ballpark now but i think the 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 environment the atmosphere and the experience is 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 pretty similar today than it was as it was 20 years ago when i was there yeah i i don't think we realized how lucky we were to be able to go three years in a row Unfortunately, we we came up short each of those years, lost in the championship game my freshman and junior year. But playing in front of 20, 24,000 just diehard baseball fans. The first year I was there, LSU was one of the eight teams. And I swear all of Omaha was just wearing yellow and purple that, that week. And you got a big, you got it, you just get a taste of the highest level of college baseball and the passion that college baseball provides. And it's, you know, certainly not ratcheted up over the last couple decades but but yeah I, I think playing in that kind of environment it certainly helps you sort of prepare for for the highest level if you're fortunate enough to get there yeah and then you played 10 seasons of professional baseball like i said you were drafted twice both times by the chicago cubs and then you came up through their system made your big league debut with the cubs in 2007 and when I was kind of reading through this, you had good numbers. Like your your offensive numbers are really good, and you you were a great defensive player. And I kept reading like Lou Pinella didn't give you an at bat for almost a month after you broke into the big leagues, and then you kind of were locked into that like fourth outfielder role for them. Did you ever look at your numbers and be like, "Hey, I should be an everyday big leaguer"? Like I'm producing in the big leagues. Uh, not not. As much as one might think. I mean, I, I, I was like, I think I had at least, and maybe this is a product of being sort of, again, like, as, as, as I said, a fan of the game growing up, but I, I understood the decisions at play. And I, especially coming up in an organization like that, a big market organization where we had fourth outfielders making $5 million. And, and sometimes those, those teams can be difficult to find playing time with. And I was just trying to trying to navigate it one day at a time, and and when I did get those opportunities, try to make the most of them. So yeah, we had we had superstars everywhere. It was Alfonso Soriano on the left, and Derek Lee at first, Ramos Ramirez at third, and we signed Coscape Fukudome to a big contract, and we had veterans like Jock Jones and Cliff Floyd, and it was it was a difficult lineup to crack, and and certainly value just being around that kind of veteran group and but i think like yeah it, it, if i were in a different organization maybe there would have been a little bit more playing time to be had and i 
when I got traded over to Tampa following that, I, I, I found myself getting a little bit more reps, which was a great opportunity too. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Tampa. You led the team in batting average through April one year. You also played with the Twins and the Athletics twice in Oakland. And that what comes up every time I'm reading about your professional career is that you were a fan favorite because of how hard you played and you had a tendency to crash into outfield walls trying to make catches. And when I'm reading that, I'm like, I could see that happening once and then being like, all right, I'm always going to take a peek back there and not just crash into it anymore. But if it keeps happening, I just imagine you're just like, hey, I'm willing to pay the cost if if I'm going to record an out here. What was the hardest you've ever crashed into an outfield wall? I would assume it was probably Wrigley, right? Yeah, that's a good that's a good call. Every <laughs> every single Wrigley, like yeah, brick wall collision was a little harder than any other any other padded environment. So Oof. yeah, I yeah, it was a part of my game. I I, did, I think it just kind of had to be. I, I had to I had to do the little things and could never sort of let up at any point and i don't know maybe it was because we didn't have a fence at exeter I, I i didn't i didn't concern myself with fences when i was there and there were there were no collisions to be had and i i tended to go after balls as if there weren't fences or teammates that were going to get in the way but i was wrong a number of times but but luckily was able to always get up and and live for live live for the next day yeah and your playing career i think it came to an end when did you retire 2000 19 uh so 17 that was the year yeah i i, I hurt myself in 2016 and okay. had, had a pretty major shoulder surgery in 2016 and was able to come back so that i, I played for uh, in the wbc with team israel and probably didn't have any business playing for them we could barely throw a baseball more than 60 feet but yeah. was able to sneak by and play a half dozen games in, in the wbc and those ended up being the last game that i played and you made a pretty immediate transition to like the front office side of baseball. How did that come about? Yeah, so I, I, I as soon as I decided to hang up the cleats, I felt like I wanted to stay in baseball in some capacity. I wanted to make a commitment to my family, who I, the, the life of a player, I think, is it can be difficult as a dad and as a husband. And so I wanted to find a, a spot where I could have a little bit more flexibility in my life. And and luckily landed with with Philadelphia Matt Klintak was the GM at the time and he, he was great to me and understood what my desires were and my priorities were and where my skills lied and yeah he sort of crafted a, a role for me that I think was a, a really good fit I was sort of a hybrid front office coach role or be in uniform and and served in many ways as a translator between our our analytics group and our and our staff and our players and did that for a couple of years. And I thought it was a, just a really good experience that allowed me to sort of like really understand some of the decisions that were, were made in terms of on-field strategy, how to get players better and using data and, and technology to do so. That's interesting. Yeah. And I've, I read when you were hired as GM of the Phillies, like that was kind of the idea that you would be more on the analytics side, Dave Dombrowski, a little bit more of like the old school maybe eye test type of thing. Is that still the way it works in terms of that collaboration? Or have you found that you're both kind of have strengths in both? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's easy to assume that somebody like Dave has been around for so long and came up in the in the game in a different era where analytics were uh, virtually non-existent. I, I think it's easy to assume that he, he might not be open-minded or might not leverage those resources. But it's it's not true. I mean, I think he's he's um, he does a great job of blending 
I think both the subjective and objective information that we get. And I'd like to think that I do the same, but I do think we complement each other well. We certainly have different backgrounds and different strengths and weaknesses. So I've found it to be a, a, a really great fit and he's not afraid to delegate responsibilities in areas that he feels more comfortable with me or others taking on. And yeah, I, I think it's been a really awesome compliment to each other. Yeah, I was re- I was reading that in 2004, you got, you tore your labrum and when, when you, this was like right when you broke into major or professional baseball and that you read Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, got an internship with Stats Inc. of Chicago. And so that, that analytical side of baseball is something that always interested you. It seems like is it still, I mean, and then I was reading somewhere that you were like tracking foul balls because no one had ever tracked that stat before and you wanted to do that. Is that kind of still the way your mind works where you're always looking for something that no one else is doing in an analytical way? Yeah, certainly. I think you have to operate that, whether it's analytically or otherwise. I think you just, it, it, this this industry is so competitive. There's 30 teams that are like looking for edges in any way that they can. Right. So I think you have to have that mindset. And I was always sort of, yeah, it's easier now that I kind of have a sense of where the industry is and what information is being used. And, but when I was playing, I had, I had really no concept of what that looked like, but just from the outside looking in, yeah, a long time ago, 15 years ago, maybe felt like, okay, nobody's really talking about foul balls. There's gotta be something there and shocker, but this, but my own little research didn't amount to anything. And I think that the notebook that I was handwriting all the data and ended up getting lost or stolen. So. Yeah, that one's still on ice, but yeah, luckily we're on to bigger and better things. Yeah, maybe somebody else is using that notebook. Who knows? I also read that you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when you were 10 years old. Um, that, I, you would think sometimes people probably use that as like, a, hey, well, I guess I'm not going to be able to fulfill, fulfill my goal of being a, an athlete or a professional athlete. How did you kind of respond to that news and put together a, a professional baseball career afterwards? Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, I had a, a a really great support system from the time of my diagnosis. I was 10 when I was when I was diagnosed and between my parents, other family, friends and the medical team that I worked with when I was diagnosed. I just got a lot of positive me- messaging from the beginning. And at age 10, I was very much uh, obsessed with baseball. And, and as I said earlier, trying to achieve my my goal of playing as high at the highest level as I could. So my first question was like, what does this mean for my, for baseball and other sports that I play? And luckily was given a lot of positive encouragement and, and I've taken that to heart. And, and I had like some great experiences along the way. I mean, when I was 12, I, I'll never forget meeting major leaguer Bill Gullix and also type one diabetic. I met him at Fenway Park along the left field line and spoke to him for like 90 seconds. And it was maybe the most important 90 seconds of my life. And I'll, I'll always remember that and I've tried to sort of pay that forward and support other type one diabetic kids as best as possible. And, and the way that we're able to manage the disease these days is so much different than it was 25, 30 years ago. And we're lucky to be able to have some technology that allows us to better regulate our blood sugar and, and live a more normal lifestyle. It's certainly not, not normal. The day to day is different than, than others without type one diabetes, but. You're certainly able to achieve everything you, you you're you'd otherwise be able to, if not more, because I think it it teaches you things like discipline and patience, and uh, certainly not necessarily saying I'm lucky to have it, but I've tried to extract as much positive from from the 
from the diagnosis as I possibly can. That's great. That's that's probably inspiring to other people just like Bill Gullickson inspired you. Sam, do you have time to hang in there to do a segment with us? It's a three up, three down segment where we just ask three general interest baseball questions about how you fell in love with the game. Yeah, I'm ready for it. All right, nice. I'm going to introduce you to our producer, David Yaz. Three up, three down. Thank you, Dan. Welcome back to Three Up, Three Down. Three questions our panelists are unprepared for. Sam, you are the guest, so you get to go first. Question number one, what's the most exciting play in baseball? I'd say the inside the park home route. Yeah, we've had a couple since I've been here. And the last one I can remember is JT Riamuto doing one in the the playoffs. And to watch a catcher (laughs) race around the bases with 44,000 screaming fans like i don't know i don't think it gets much better than that did you ever hit one at any level well at exeter we had no fences so all the homers <laughs> i hit were inside the bar no at professional level i don't think i ever did all right excellent answer dan your thoughts i would either say a grand slam because usually everybody's kind of at attention when the bases are loaded and then you feel the crack of the hear the crack of the bat and you're like oh my god that's gonna be good. everybody's going wild or a triple play. So, sometimes that'll really get a, a pitcher's in trouble and then somebody hammers a ground ball to third base, tag the bag, throw to second, throw to first. That's also an exciting one. I'll never forget Mike Greenwell's inside the park home run in Fenway when poor Claude L. Washington for the Yankees slammed into the right field fence and just collapsed in a heap. <laughs> Greenwell kept running with a big smile on his face. Usually means there's an outfielder down for the count. That's <laughs> yeah. It, it or does. a weird hop off a fence or something. All right, question number two. Dan, you are throwing out the first pitch at a ball game. You fill in the rest of the circumstances. It could be past, present, any ballpark, and who are you throwing the pitch to? Oh, man. Um, well, it would have to be in Philadelphia because that's where I feel like I developed my love of baseball. It would definitely be from the mound. And I think I would throw it to my dad because that's who, uh-huh. I, who I grew up playing baseball with. Oh, well, good luck topping that one, Sam. But by the way, there's so much there's so much Philly love on this podcast. I think I smell cheese sticks. Uh, <laughs> Sam, you're throwing out the first pitch. What are you doing? I'm going to I'm going to copycat this one in many ways, but I, I would have to say uh, it's it's at Citizens Bank Park. It's actually the one ballpark that I did not play in as a, as a player so wow. i would I, I recognize throwing out the first pitch is not necessarily playing there but that that's at least as close as i could get at this point so and for many other reasons i'd want it to be in philly and i would i i think the dad answer is great my dad was a huge part of my the biggest part of my baseball career and has been a huge support for me throughout so that would be really meaningful and and my left arm would work it doesn't work anymore and, and i'd actually be able to throw it from the mound and throw that same sort of mid 80s slop that I used to at, at, at high school. Nice. Yes. Well, it's, it's, this is a fantasy camp here. So you're allowed to do that. Um, by the way, Sam, on a personal note, I, I know you played in the Cape league. Uh, my dad, Saul Yaz was an executive for the Cape league for many years. And I, we were talking about father, sons of baseball. I got to give his speech inducting him into the Cape Cod league hall of fame. So wow. we've That's just cool. we've just gone full Ray Kinsella Field of Dreams on this pod here, I guess. <laughs> Final question, and Sam, you get to go first. Are ballpark dimension quirks a good thing, or should there be rules toward standardizing the size of a baseball field? 
I love that they're different. I really do. I, I think I, there's something about going to, there's something about ballparks period that are just, it's special to me. And, and I, I don't know, I'm thinking back to like, as a kid, when I'd walk into Fenway park and it's one, it's just sort of being in a, in a cathedral like that, that's special, but whether it's the green monster or the giant red field out there or otherwise, it's just, it's just cool to see the uniqueness that each ballpark presents. And I, I just think, yeah, I, I get the other side of the coin where you, you could ask, you, you could state that it's a more fair version of the game if we've got standardized dimension. But I just think there's like, there's, you know, there, there's such a, such a cool part about each, each ballpark and each has its own flavor and, some of that very much lies in, in the weird dimensions that exist. I love it. In addition, in addition to the dimensions of the the field at Citizens Bank Park, I love the the porch in left field, which I, I I brought my son there one time when we were visiting Philly, and for some reason it it's bleacher seats that don't feel like you're so far away. Anyway, it's because um, it's not that our right-handed yeah, right. hitters like the porch there too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, your thoughts on quirks. Well, first, I'm surprised that somebody who is famous for crashing into outfield fences <laughs> wants unique dimensions in ballparks. But as someone who's only sat in the stands at these things, I, I like the unique dimensions. I like them all to be different. And I think that's part of the great thing about baseball. Terrific. We have one just final very quick bonus question for three up, three down. It's for, it's for you, Sam. The, the crack research staff here at the Base Path podcast has unearthed your pitching statistics. And you own a career ERA of 0.00. So the question is, are you the greatest pitcher of all time? <laughs> I tell my kids that. Do, yeah. you, do you remember that day? Oh, I remember it very well. Yep. Yeah. I remember J.B. Shuck getting a three-run count. And, well, I, all five of the pitches that I threw in the major leagues, I was trying to throw right down the middle. And none of them went right down the middle. But <laughs> to get him to pop out, and it's, it was a weird moment because we were getting our butts beat, but it was also like maybe the cool, one of the coolest moments in my career. So well, it. it's different now. Guys tend to lob it in there, but uh, I was I was glad to be. I love it. What a nice claim to fame. Uh, fantastic job, Sam. We thank you. Dan, you did okay as well. Uh, back to you, Dan, to close out the show. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks so much to Sam Fold for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. Thanks.